Yeah, so what were you asking? So I was just asking, how you been? <laughs> oh, I've been good. Uh, I just started FIU recently. Um, uh, uh, political science. Oh, fantastic. All right. Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 10. We just got to double digits. Uh, we've been gone for a while, but, you know, better late than ever, I guess. Um, episode 10 of Small Room. I am here with uh, J.P. Bottle. Is that how you say it? Yes, that's correct. All right. Here with J.P. Bottle. He is a candidate for House District 114 of the Florida for, for the Florida House of Representatives. Um, that's within the Coral Gables area. So if you live anywhere between 57th and 42nd, uh, I can pull up a map later. But here's my first question. And I think this is a question that every single candidate who's running for office should get. Why are you running? So here's, you know, that's a personal question for every single candidate. They're going to have a different answer. And so for me, uh, you know, my first, my first brush with the idea of service was way back uh, when I was, uh, when I was your age, um, I attended the uh, United States Military Academy at West Point. And, you know, certain people, a lot of people are familiar with the, the fam famous cadet honor code, right? A cadet should not lie, cheat, or steal, nor tolerate those who do. Uh, people aren't as familiar with the purpose of the military academy, which is to provide the nation with leaders of character to serve in the common defense. And so, you know, fast forward many years, and uh, you know, a friend of mine that's uh, that's in the the Democratic Party called me and asked me if I'd be interested in running for this seat uh, that uh, was being vacated by the, the Democrat that held it, Javier Fernandez, who's now running to, uh, to take on uh, a, Senate, uh, a Senate run in Florida 39. And so it's funny how your brain works because you know, the, they teach you the honor code. That's the first thing that happens at West Point. The second thing that they talk, talk to you about is sort of why you're there and the purpose. And I hadn't thought about that in, in decades and years. I thought that my service, you know, the service to my country was complete. But when I started to think about a lot of specific issues that are going on in the state of Florida uh, and things that I've been seeing for the last few years, it occurred to me that while serving my country could have been just part one and, and, and service to my community, to my state could certainly be part two. And so that, that idea of service really revolves around uh, the entire, the entirety of my campaign. And so, um, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you sort of the, 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 the real idea of why we need folks that, that are willing to serve, that are willing to, you know, commit to just all people, right? So I'll take you back to 2010. And in 2010, then Governor Rick Scott was running for uh, what he called his 777 plan, which was seven laws that he wanted to pass in seven years to build 700,000 jobs. And you know, I'll, I'll, here we are in 2010, we have the data back to 2018. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll save you the suspense, right? They passed more, many more than seven laws. And in fact, we didn't get the 700,000 jobs that he promised. 
But here's, here's the, the thing I point out to. In 2010, 50% of Miami-Dade County and actually 50% of, of the state of Florida uh, qualified as working poor, where they had constrained income and limited assets. 20, uh, 2018 numbers. So we look at all that time the Republicans were in charge, 60% of Miami-Dade County is now working poor. 60% of the states is working poor. So, you know, what to me, to me, the, the issue is what is the greater sin, right? That you created a plan that was supposed to bring jobs and didn't, or that the plan was so ill-conceived that you actually made, you know, working families poorer by implementing those policies. And so I tie that into the, the concept of service because I just don't think that Florida now has many individuals that are, are willing to serve, maybe not in the common defense, but are willing to serve with the idea that uh, they are leaders of character that care more for their constituents than they do for a special interest or in some cases, their own benefit. So you would say, oh, yeah. So you would say that the reason why you're running is to is to help local families and create jobs within the economy of Florida. So there's there's a couple of different ways. Let let's stick with that one. So so one of those bills that got passed in 2000, 2011, excuse me, right after uh, Rick Scott was elected governor, uh, one of the bills that was passed was in two thousand eleven HB seven zero zero five, and people had sort of forgotten about that bill for a long time until just a few months ago, because that was the bill that created the unemployment system that has just been a, a catastrophe for Miami-Dade County in particular and, and Florida as a whole, right? And, and, and the travesty is that our unemployment system is functioning exactly the way it was intended to function. Right, and it's it's not that we can point to something being wrong in how these bills were created and passed. You know, a lot of what a lot of what uh, Republicans say is that they're you know these bills were passed because they were pro business. Well, I've got an MBA in finance and international business. I've got a JD in in law, and I'm a practicing attorney. You know, I've had a lot of experiences, and in the world of business, there's a difference between bad business and being pro-business. And a lot of the bills that are being passed are, are pro-bad business, if anything, but they're really just bad bills that, you know, we, we sort of rob Peter to pay Paul, but Paul, in this case, are the highest 1% of businesses in our state, and all of us are suffering as a result. So, you know, my platform actually goes uh, into a, a couple of different areas, but when you think of where we are right now, uh, I think that you have to look at pre-COVID and where, where are opportunities for Democrats to, to, to make real substantive change. And then post-COVID where we say, look, all those bad bills like HB 7005, we need to reform if not straight repeal them because we need to, 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 to shift the paradigm from the idea that these quote unquote pro-business bills somehow, you know, uh, uh, help businesses to the, to the very real ramification that these businesses 
aren't standalone. They have employees, they have consumers, right? And if you forget about all the stakeholders that go into a quote unquote business, then it's bad business. And so we need to look at all of the, all the bills that, that uh, have been affecting us, including those from the 777 plan and look at reforming all of them. And that's gonna be, you know, that, that's gonna be, I think uh, one of the main missions of the legislature coming up. One of the things that you're seeing from our governor uh, is, you know, he, he's sort of blaming the system, right? Well, you know, it's not my fault that things are, are happening. You know, I just, I just got here. It's not really my fault. Well, if it's not your fault, which I'm not, I'm not sure I agree with that assessment, but if it's not your fault, who was there in front of you, right? Who got there? Well, that was Rick Scott. And for political purposes, he won't admit that Rick Scott by name created all these problems. But that's only 50% of the solution because they've had a Republican-led legislature for the last 10 years, technically you know, since 1998. But in the last 10 years in particular, it's been all Republicans. And they're the ones that got us into this mess with really short-sighted uh, 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 plans and bills that are really, really forsaking just normal everyday folks. So from an economic perspective, yes, uh, that has to be part of every candidate's platform, not just mine. And then you get to the, the, the district specific issues that you'd also like to address. Right. You know, district one, uh, uh, last thing, I promise, I, I can do this all day. Uh, but oh, I love it. One, <laughs> district 114 is a really diverse district, right? It's, it's a narrow corridor. It starts all the way in the north in 836. And then it goes all the way down, uh, just like you mentioned. It's got Ludlam on one side and Lejeune on the other. And it's basically like a corridor that goes down uh, uh, all the way to Cutler Bay. And then when it gets to Cutler Bay, it's sort of like a thermometer. And it opens up like the base of a thermometer and takes all of Cutler Bay. So you've got many, many municipalities, right? You, in the north, you've got uh, uh, Flagami, Coral Terrace, West Miami, right? In the middle, you've got Coral Gables. You've got uh, uh, South Miami. You've got little sections of uh, Pinecrest and Palmetto Bay, and then all of Cutler Bay. So there's a lot of uh, uh, diverse, diverse families, diverse skill sets, and then uh, there you're putting up the map. And so yeah, the yellow is uh, 114 as you're describing it. Continue. Yeah, and so what you find is, you know, there are certain, you know, there there are, are certain differences in in the groups, like the district itself is a majority minority district where I think six, about 60% of households speak Spanish. But if you're down by Cutler Bay, that's, that's not where you find uh, a lot of those, the majority of those, of those uh, households, you have to go further up. And then there's households you know, to the north in West Miami, Flagami, where it's even greater than 60% in terms of how it's Spanish in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the household. So, um, you know, the reason I point that out is because we need somebody that can, can talk to everyone, more importantly, be able to listen to everyone, because we're going to have certain things that we need to fix within our district, and there's going to be other things that we need to fix within the state. And so, you know, I hadn't had the opportunity because kind of jumped into it, jumped into it. But thank you for, you know, having me and giving me the opportunity to discuss some of these things. No problem. I think it's important since, you know, most of my friends live within this area that 
they see and hear the candidates who are running for office to determine who's the best in their mind to vote for. Um, now, you mentioned earlier the unemployment system, and this is actually one of the few stories about the state legislator, like the effects of bills passed by the state legislator that got wide press coverage. I don't know if you remember, but a few months ago, um, a few months ago, everyone was talking about, oh, Florida's unemployment system is bad and bad. And everyone's response was, yeah, that's how it was meant to be designed. Like you said earlier, that, that's, how it was, that was, that's how it was meant to be. So less people would file for unemployment. Uh, now, my question to you is, how do you think Governor Ron DeSantis has responded? How, how well do you think Governor Ron DeSantis has responded to the COVID crisis? So I, I think the only word I can describe is irresponsibly. Uh, so there, there's, there's multiple ways, right? So um, first of all, playing with semantics and, and, and calling it a safer at home order, uh, that's, that's just the, the wrong answer, right? It's a stay at home order is what we needed. And because we didn't have a, a, a strong stay at home order and the timing of it wasn't much earlier than we actually got, you know, that's why we're seeing uh, the numbers that we have in, in the last couple of weeks, right? It's, it's incorrect to say that we are entering the second wave of coronavirus here in Florida. We never left the first wave, right? And so there's the, just, just from the basics, right? You don't have to be a doctor or any type of physician to understand the most basic principle of public health. It's really simple. Don't let sick people walk around. Right. That's that's the most basic, the basic thing behind uh, public health policy. And so what we're what we see in, instead is that, you know, the the governor kowtows to the president, uh, doesn't want to step on his toes, doesn't want to seem too uh, political. And so we don't we don't issue a stay at home order. Uh, we're one of the, the, the last of the major state of the larger states to do so. When we do, uh, he completely, you know, fails to, to take responsibility. You might remember the president himself said at the beginning of this that, you know, COVID made him a wartime general. Well, I've actually met wartime generals and, and they, don't, they don't behave by uh, allowing others uh, at, the, at different levels to make decisions. Well, the president did that, and then the governor did that. Instead of having one stay-at-home order, he didn't want to step on the president's toes and allowed every county to basically come up with its own plan. And COVID doesn't have physical boundaries, right? So we didn't do that. Secondly, I've been particularly upset with the reporting uh, that's gone on uh, from the state. You know, there's been it's been widely reported. Uh, uh, that the numbers that we've been producing uh, simply aren't accurate, or there have been allegations that the numbers were uh, int intentionally fraudulent, right? The number that I think about most often is the, is the pneumonia deaths, because generally by, by this time of year, Florida has about a thousand deaths uh, caused by pneumonia. Well, this year, we're already over 5,000, right? And, and I think about, well, is it really that they're dying of people are dying of pneumonia, or is it the pandemic that we just want to minimize? 
And, and, and to me, that's the greatest cause of concern. You might recall the state of New York uh, in one day reclassified thousands of deaths because they realized, oh, wait a minute, uh, we're not classifying them correctly. They, they were classifying coronavirus deaths solely when somebody had already been diagnosed uh, with coronavirus and subsequently, and subsequently passed away. And then they realized, but wait a minute, you had individuals that showed all the systems, or excuse me, symptoms, uh, but passed away before they could get the test and recalibrated their numbers. Uh, there is a responsibility from government to do that, to say, you know what, we, we were wrong, uh, but in the interest of public safety, public health, we need to make sure you understand the nature of the threat. That's never happened here in Florida. Uh, when you look at uh, you know, other aspects, just outside from the, the, the health aspect, right? Uh, back to a little bit of the, of the economy, uh, you know, tomorrow is July 1st and, and, and rent's gonna be due, right? We had a moratorium on rent being due, and, and that's that was a positive thing. But here's the, here's here's the real issue, right? And it doesn't take a rocket science to to figure it out. You know, I tell people all the time: if you if you want to figure out a problem, the best way to do it is to follow the money. So you have an employee that doesn't have uh, that doesn't have a paycheck coming in. Okay, so they don't have a paycheck coming in, then they can't pay rent to their landlord. Okay, so the landlord, generally speaking, has a mortgage. And when you think about, well, wait a minute, what's, what happens to that mortgage? Well, that's coming from the bank. Now we've had zero discussions about having uh, uh, banks in Florida not be able to, to uh, foreclose for late payments. Now, you, you can be, you can be uh, uh, some people might say it's naive. Other people might say you're being overly optimistic. There, there may, may be small community banks and there may be even large banks that say, you know, given the, the nature of COVID, we should, we should not be foreclosing on properties. And then you follow the money. If the landlord doesn't have to worry about foreclosure, then he's less likely to worry about the rent payment. And if the individual is less likely to worry about the rent payment, then they're less likely to worry about uh, getting back to work and more concerned with, with safety, right? Let me, do, let me wear my mask all the time. Let me uh, um, uh, uh, socially distance as necessary, right? If you follow the logical conclusion from soup to nuts, you can create a plan that actually makes people uh, healthier and prevents them from having to worry about their day-to-day. But we've, been, we've never had that. And so we have a lot of people in Florida that are worried about, you know, when it, how, am I, how am I gonna uh, survive and will I be homeless? These are, not, these are not problems that people should be having in the middle of a pandemic. The only concern should be, how do we stay healthy, me, my family and friends? I 100% agree. And you speak about plans. Um, let's say you get elected and you're now the representative for HD 114. What would you propose to combat COVID or to prevent, like to combat or prevent the next COVID? So there, there's a couple of things. The, the, easiest, the easiest solutions are, you know, we repeal everything from, from early in Rick Scott's, uh, Rick Scott's uh, uh, governorship. 
uh, a lot of those quote unquote pro-business bills were simply bad business. But, uh, you know, I can tell you from, from the numbers that we're looking at, uh, it, it shouldn't be surprising if we're still socially distancing, if we're still, if we're still have businesses closed and we're still going through these effects through the middle of 2021. I mean, that's, that's, that's a strong possibility when you consider we're still at the end of phase one and we were always expecting the second wave to hit us in, in, uh, at the end of the year, right? So what can we do? There, there, there's, several, there's several ways. And, and truth be told, I wish that the governor or the leadership in the legislature would, wouldn't wait until the, the, the next session. I wish that they would create a special session and start dealing with these issues now. And so you can look at them both from a health perspective as well as from an economic perspective. So number one, we need, we need to make sure that our stockpile of masks is adequate at the most basic level. Okay, number two, we need to make sure that, uh, that we come up with a, with a true plan for socially distancing for all of the employees that look, we need them to work, whether it's at a supermarket or whether it's at a, a business that truly is uh, uh, necessary for the public good or for the, for, for the public, we need to have plans for, to allow them to work. From an economic perspective, we can also look at uh, the, the unemployment system. And so our unemployment system is, if not the worst in, in the 50 states, certainly near the bottom. You know, we provide $275 a week of unemployment insurance for a maximum of 12 weeks, right? So if you do the math, $275 a week, you know, you're looking at basically just over $1,000 for, for uh, an unemployed person over the course of, of a month. Now, that essentially covers it, or gets to eaten up by, by your rent payment or by your housing. And you've got very little left over, if any at all, for the necessities of life. So we need to be able to, 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 to look at that and say, that's not sustainable, right? Uh, on the flip side of that, you know, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of what we call the, the living wage. And so, you know, Florida, Florida just hasn't done right by employees at all. And, and you know, we say, again, it's, it's, it's the pro-bad business mentality that if you, if you keep the cost down as much as possible, including labor costs, then businesses will be profitable and that, that uh, will trickle down to everyone else. Well, that trickle down theory uh, was, was put to the test way back in the 80s and it's long since been proven a failure. It's a failure at the federal level, at the state level, and local level. So how do you, how do, how do, you do that? Well, a living wage basically says that we're gonna have a minimum wage tied to some uh, inflationary rate, right? Uh, a lot of times you might hear discussion about raising the minimum wage to $15. And look, you know, right now the, the, the minimum wage in, in Florida is about eight, it's a little, it's about eight fifty. It's, it's not exactly eight fifty, but it's like eight, $8 and I think 48 cents or something like that. Whatever it is, it's, it's, it's way too low. But here's the thing. If you're making eight and a, eight, eight and eight and a bit, and somebody tells you the minimum wage is now $15, that sounds great. And, and in those circumstances it is, but 
you know, inflation only goes up. And so there will come a time when $15 just isn't what it used to be. And that's why you have to, you have to have a measure that ties the minimum wage to some inflation so that you have enough to actually be able to live. Uh, and so that is, you know, that, that's a tough haul in, in this legislature coming up unless, you know, we have a blue wave and we're able to take control. Uh, you know, a lot of folks uh, understandably, you know, believe it's difficult to, to overturn uh, the, uh, the, the number of seats that we need. I think it's 15 or 16 seats that we need to overturn the entire legislature. But, you know, Virginia did it uh, just, uh, just this last uh, election cycle. I'm hopeful that we can. You know, we do have some challenges because in 2010, with the redistricting, there are just certain districts that uh, that are just made for the Republicans. And so, the gerrymandering, correct. And so, um, it's difficult for us to to get there all in one fell swoop. But if there's ever been an election cycle where where the 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 hope exists that it can happen. I think it's this one. Okay. Um, so just to get you on the record, you are in favor of a $15 minimum wage that's tied to inflation, or would you go a little bit lower, say $12 an hour? No, I, I, I think I would prefer $15 plus a, you know, uh, uh, tied to inflation. Um, I wouldn't go lower because you know, currently, from the studies that I've seen, uh, it seems like $15 is, is the amount you need to have a living wage in this economy. I, so, so to me, that's the baseline. I 100% agree. Um, now, just to summarize, your plan would be just basic health standards that, to, to say, to put it lightly, our governor has failed to meet, <laughs> and economic security, like a minimum wage increase for working Floridians. Uh, now, I wanna get to something that just broke a few hours ago. I don't know if you heard it, but essentially, uh, Ron DeSantis signed a bill that requires girls under the age of 18 to, if they want to get an abortion, if it, let's say they get pregnant at eight, lower than 18, they would have to get their parents' permission. Uh, my, my question to you is, what's your stance on the issue? Do you agree or disagree? So I'd, I'd have to look at it. There's, there's, there's a couple of sides to it, right? Um, First of all, just in generally speaking, my position is that uh, a woman has the right to choose what happens to her body, right? I mean, I think that's, that's, that's where I start from. Um, the, the issue then becomes, uh, you know, you're dealing with a minor. And so as a minor, or as the parents of a minor, the adults have certain rights. Now, the problem is, that in cases of, uh, of abortion, and if you look at, you know, the, 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 some of the worst cases, you know, the parents can be part of the problem. And so, you know, requiring a child to, to, uh, to then go to a parent to get to seek that permission, uh, I think in general will simply lead to the, the experiences that we've, we saw 40, 50, 60, 80 years ago, where girls were put in an unfortunate position of high, having to hide their abortion. I think that's, that's the logical thing that would happen. So while 
you know, there, there is, there is a part of me that understands that parents do have certain rights uh, uh, over a, over their, their minor children. Uh, I don't know that they extend this far. So me, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to seem like I'm, I'm treading a line. I'm, I'm firmly, uh, I'm firmly in the, in the, uh, on the side of the woman choosing. Uh, but I can understand how some parents would, would feel aggrieved by it because, you know, they would want to make the decision on behalf of, or I shouldn't say they would want to make the decision, but they would certainly want to, uh, want to provide the, the authority for a minor child making many of their decisions and, and probably that one as well. Uh, that is a very difficult situation, but I, I think, uh, as, as usual, our governor has overstepped. The, the people who are, who, are, who are angry, pissed at Ron, at Ron DeSantis are like, this is an overstep, and this is one of those decisions where, where it is the woman's body, like, therefore it's her choice as to what she wants to do with it. And I wanted just to, just to see where you stood. Yeah, no, look, I, I, I wish we lived in, in a world where abortion didn't exist. Uh, but it, it's simply not the case. There's, there, there's too many circumstances where, you know, a woman, for whatever reason, uh, has to go through a, a, a very difficult choice, uh, the, type of, the type of choice that I personally will never understand. And I'm not in a place to, to judge that woman. I'm not in a place to deny that woman. Uh, I understand how the other side can disagree with that, uh, but you know, to me, if if you truly value the rights of of the individual, then as difficult a, a choice as that is, uh, you know, you have to you have to side with the woman. And, and remember, you know, our, our our Supreme Court has not has not ruled that all abortions are, are legal, right? There are late-term late abortions under uh, certain circumstances would be deemed illegal by our Supreme Court. Um, but at the end of the day, you have, you know, just a, a, what I can only imagine to be a, a horrible choice to have to make. And putting the state in the middle of that choice uh, just doesn't seem to me to be the right answer. Um, I agree. Now, this I'm going to get to another issue right now, and this one is an issue that many say is and believe is the most important issue, and that is climate change, because climate change is one of those things where it, it, it affects all of us and it affects us all negatively. If climate change ends up going through and and ends up like engulfing the world. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm like, I'm, I'm very flustered right now. <laughs> if climate right, change yeah. ends up taking effect, then all of us are screwed. And I wanna get to a question that my sister sent me. I basically told her, hey, I'm interviewing this candidate for state house. And she brought this up because to her, this is her most important issue. And this is, I would say also in my top five. Here it is. Flooding is a huge threat for Floridians, especially during hurricane season. And this has to do with climate change and that climate change causes more flooding. With hurricane season around the corner, 
how would you prepare and deal with this threat of flooding? All right, so that, that's a great question. Um, it's funny because if you, if you go to my website, uh, the first thing that you see in our issues is, is what I call fighting rising waters or fighting sea level rise. Uh, you know, we're actually in the process of, of, uh, of putting a little meat into our website because right now it just sort of gives the, 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 the basics. Um, but, you know, in, in terms of fighting sea level rise, because I don't, climate change to me is a global problem. Sea level rise is a Miami problem. And so there's, there's a couple of things. So just in the news, in the last couple of weeks or so, uh, there was a bill that was signed by Governor DeSantis that, uh, that approved $625 million of the budget for, uh, for water quality or water improvement projects. Uh, most of that money was going to, to Lake Okeechobee and the surrounding areas. I think about $300 million worth was just in, in, in Lake Okeechobee and the surrounding area. When you look at how much money was spent locally or look for local projects, the numbers just dwindle and dwindle and dwindle. I don't want to say that we got zero, but it's going to be pretty close to it when, once the, 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 v, the line item vetoes come around. And so to me, that's very, very disconcerting because think about conceptually what just happened. You had uh, Republicans and Democrats realizing that water quality was a problem in the state of Florida and allocating $625 million to fighting that issue, right? And then the most populous part of the state gets almost nothing from it, right? And so what is the use of having, you know, the, this, the, these, these expensive projects fixing the quality of the water, the quality of the infrastructure, the quality of pipes at the source, if by the time they get to your, your glass of water, to your lips, they've gone through, uh, you know, either bad pipes, rotten pipes, you know, in areas where you, um, where you have a, a, a runoff, you know, you can have water intermixing uh, with bad water. I mean, it, it ends up being useless. So there's a couple of things. One of the things that I would like to fight for is, is to extend the coverage of, of that water quality bill, right? It, it's already something people were, could agree with. And so my, my fight would be, let's take that bill we already agree with and allocate dollars down here to, to South Florida, right? That's, that's the, the first thing. Um, I think another really important thing that needs to happen is in terms of the state providing matching dollars uh, to local governments so that we can convert from septic to sewer. Uh, septic tanks are basically uh, 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 little bombs waiting to happen. Um, you know, they, there, are, there are whole neighborhoods uh, and certainly plenty of, plenty of homes within the district that unfortunately they, they have a septic tank and you know, it, all it takes is, is one bad storm with some runoff, some flooding, and that septic tank is not just going to be a problem for them, but for all of their neighbors. And so I, I believe that we need to have dollars from the state and, the, and local government. You know, I, I'm just amazed that uh, 
that there are local officials, uh, Republicans, that still say that sea level rise isn't a problem here in Miami. It, that, that just, it's not rational to me. Uh, I can understand how people can disagree how you solve the problem, right? Maybe, maybe uh, someone can come up with an idea for just removing septic tanks, maybe not putting them into, connecting them to the, to the, uh, the sewer systems. Maybe somebody's idea is just replace, you know, replace the septic tanks. I, personally, I think that's, that's, you know, only half the issue. But if somebody came up with an idea, I would listen to it, right? But that's very different than the person that just denies that there's any problem whatsoever. And, and unfortunately, there are Republicans that, that do that. And it doesn't even make sense from, from uh, an economic perspective, because if you really are pro-business, then you want good septic to sewer, not just uh, uh, for, for, for the residences, but for the employers and for the employees, right? You want updated pipes, you want better infrastructure under your businesses, whether you're downtown Cutler Bay, downtown Coral Gables, downtown South Miami, right? That, from a business perspective, it makes sense to spend now on that infrastructure because when we get to the point where we have to pay, it's going to be because something blew up and it's going to be a hell of a lot more expensive in, you know, at that point in time than it would be now. All right. And other than like what you mentioned, which is super important, um, which is preventing flooding and cleaning water, uh, what else would you do to combat climate change and the effects of it? Well, so, that, so that's, you know, a, a broad question. Uh, in terms of climate change in, in, um, in general, you know, there's, there's a lot of good solutions out there. You know, for me, I want to fight for the people of the district and get them the things that they need right now. Uh, and so, you know, like, like your, your, your sister's question, you know, we are about to come into, we're about to come into uh, uh, hurricane season. And God knows the way 2020 has been coming so far, you know, we might have just one or two or God knows how many hurricanes are going to hit us. But, you know, we're going to have to have a legislature that is prepared to fund and uh, the, uh, prepared to fund local, local, uh, local governments. And, and, and that's, there's just no getting around it. Um, we need to clean up our, we need to clean up our infrastructure. Our pipes are a mess. We need to go from septic to sewer because the septic tanks are, you know, just one flood away from exploding. And so those are going to be big fights uh, because we do have Republicans in office that are, that, you know, are, are climate deniers or sea level rise deniers. Uh, I think I'm going to have my handful fighting for those. Uh, but, you know, climate in general is an, 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 an important task. All right. And um, now I want to get to the issue of police brutality. As you very well, as you know, and as everyone listening to this knows, a month ago, a little bit over a month ago, George Floyd was brutally murdered by Minneapolis police and similar, not just murders, but abuse of power has occurred by many police officers throughout this country. And as a result, there've been peaceful protests to, to protest what is going on. And my question to you is, 
what would you propose at the state level to reform the police? All right, so I'm, I'm gonna start off uh, making, making an analogy. Um, you know, I, I graduated from the military academy, I joined the army, uh, and you know, the, the military has had, uh, you know, such an important uh, place in my life in terms of uh, uh, being the prism through which I see things, right? And the reason I mention that is because my least favorite movie of all time is a movie, I don't know, at this point it's maybe 20, 30 years old, called Platoon. And the reason that I dislike Platoon, even though it's Academy Award winning, winning uh, motion picture, uh, all kinds of awards, uh, everyone says it's a, a, a universally accepted as a great film, but I dislike it. And the reason I dislike it is because it takes every single problem that existed in the, in, in the army and in the country, and it puts it in this one group, this one platoon of a dozen, couple dozen men. And so it, it you know, there, it shows that the army of that time uh, had racism, it had, it had uh, violence, it had drugs, it had poor leadership. It takes every single problem and puts it into this one small group of people. And my, my, my concern with the movie Platoon is not that the problems didn't exist, absolutely they existed. But my, my concern is that we are unable to, to take a step back and say, you know, what is the, the root cause of the problem? You know, I thought, I've thought about that movie for a long time. And, you know, I take, let's take the example of racism in that movie. Uh, that the black soldiers face in that movie. You know, the reason that that platoon had racism was because the, the army had racism in it. And why did the army have racism in it? Because our country in the 1970s was divided uh, on, on racial lines. Well, here we are, you know, decades later, and we really haven't done very much. I mean, institutionally, we, we, we just have it. We're the same or perhaps worse. And so when, the reason I bring all of that up is because, um, you know, I, I know police officers that are warm and caring human beings. And I work with them on, on a weekly basis. There's, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's a food distribution event that I go to every week. We feed uh, anywhere from, you know, 400 to maybe 750 uh, families. Uh, and we always have the police there and they're always professional. So the reason I, I bring all of that up is because I don't like saying that people are, are protesting the police. I make, a, I make a distinction. People are protesting the bad police, right? If you, take, if you take any group, chances are nine out of 10 are just be fine. Maybe they're not all excellent. Some couple are excellent, some are good, some are average, but you're not gonna have, or you shouldn't have, you know, this pervasive sense that all, all of that group, whatever it is, are, are bad. So let's focus on those that are, uh, you know, violating civil rights 
that are manifesting uh, uh, their racial prejudice through through uh, through violence, right? To me, that's the first step. Get everybody in the same room. And then there's a, quite a few number, there's quite a few solutions, right? So one of the solutions we're talking about locally in Miami-Dade is to bring back the uh, civilian oversight board of the police. Well, we had a civilian oversight board. It had absolutely no teeth. It was worthless. It couldn't make anything other than recommendations. And when they did make a recommendation, it would, they, they weren't binding. And so they were always ignored. So if the solution is bring back the civilian oversight board, my answer is, well, what authority are they really going to have, right? If they're not going to have any authority, then I don't want to bring them back. If they are, then what is it? And let's talk about it. So the other, another uh, example that, that, uh, that you can talk about uh, is the, the concept of qualified immunity. Now, for those in your audience that don't know, there's a legal doctrine that says that police officers uh, cannot be held personally liable for, uh, for crimes they commit or violations of civil rights that they commit while on active duty and doing their jobs, right? Now, here's the funny thing about qualified immunity. No politicians ever talked about it, discussed it. It was created by the courts. And then based off the circumstances in, in one trial, a judge said, qualified immunity now exists. And then a bunch of other judges over time said, well, that's the precedent. So we're gonna apply that precedent. And now there's a thing called qualified immunity which to me, you know, that's not really how the system should work. So there's off the top of my, oh, oh I lost you. Oh, I, I can't hear you. You're, oh, I'm sorry. You're uh, can can yeah. you explain what qualified immunity is to the audience? Sure, so, so like I was saying, so let me, let me give you the example. Um, so qualified immunity, would would exist where let's say as soon as you take your take your oath like you raise your right hand you take the oath now i'm a police officer so if you were if you then see uh, a black or brown individual and you beat them up let's not even go the whole way you just you don't like how they look and so you beat them up under the doctrine of qualified immunity if you beat them up while you were on the job, you know, while you were acting as a police officer, wearing your uniform, had your badge, you identified yourself if necessary, and then you just beat them up, they couldn't sue you, right? They could, they could sue the city as your employer, but they can't sue you personally. And so that idea of qualified immunity in a lot of ways acts as a, a, a you know, a shield against those police officers that would act uh, maliciously because they know they can't personally uh, 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 suffer from, from any uh, wrongdoing that they do. So there's a couple of different ways to think about, <clears throat> about how you approach it. So the first one is from the second that, that the, any police officer takes their oath, they have qualified immunity, full stop, you can never personally go after them for the wrongdoing that they do on the job. So, so you have the two extremes, right? There is qualified immunity or there isn't. So in the middle ground, you have, you have two areas. Let's say you start off with no qualified immunity 
as a police officer. But in the course of an encounter, you attempt to de-escalate de the situation. You do all the things that a good police officer is supposed to do. There's evidence either through the body cam or through testimony from others at the scene, but there's evidence that you attempted to de-escalate the situation. So now you may have, even though you started out that encounter with no qualified immunity, through your actions, you've now gained it, right? And so that's a protection for the police officer. And then there's the flip side to that, which is you started off with qualified immunity, but instead of de-escalating the situation, you escalated it. You started, uh, you know, you started uh, 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 breaking someone's civil rights. You were, you were uh, becoming violent with them. You were, uh, you were, you know, escalating the situation. And, and that's broad because you can do it in many different ways, both violent and nonviolent. But there's evidence either through the body cam or through testimony from others that are nearby. And it's shown that you escalated the situation. Well, now you went from a position of having qualified immunity to losing it based off your own actions, right? Now, to me, I'm not smart enough individually to be able to tell you what the right answer is because there's so many different circumstances where something can apply or not apply. But I think the first step is you get community leaders in a room, you get police officers, leadership in a room, you get politicians in a room, and you start talking about it. Because qualified immunity didn't exi doesn't exist as a law. You can't go to uh, the, the Florida statutes and, and, and read, oh, here is how they defined qualified immunity in the very beginning, right? That's not how it works. It was a legal doctrine created by courts. So. So now we're at a, a point in our, our society where we can, should, and need to talk about these things, right? And so I, I, think, I think that police officers have to, as a whole, have to come to the same reala realization that I did about the Army, right? There are certain problems that the Army has, not because the Army is bad, not because soldiers are bad, but because the army is made up of Americans and Americans have all sorts. And so we like to think that our organization is the best, but even the best organizations, you know, they have folks that, you know, just, they just don't cut it. In the police, in, in the world of the police, that's especially dangerous because they exist to protect and to serve. And if they're not doing that, if they're frightening those people that they're supposed to be there to work for, to assist, then they can't possibly do their jobs. And, and the worst part is that, you know, those bad apples, whether it's one or two or 10 or 20, those are the ones that ruin it for the rest. And then finally, you know, aside from those, those reforms, the, the one thing that I would like to, to understand that really hasn't been uh, defined very well at all is the whole concept of defunding the police. So defunding the police can mean many things and I've heard it used in many ways, right? Some people say defund the police in terms of literally just take all the money away. I'm not sure that that's the right answer at all, but you can also say defund the police internally, in which case you take, you take money uh, from their budget and you allocate it differently within, within the police department 
And then that reallocation goes to changing the culture, changing the training, train, changing the, the, the science of, of relationships to the extent that hasn't been done before. You could also reallocate that money to a completely different entity, right? So, you know, the, there's communities that have been in the news recently uh, because they did studies in, in their areas and they found, for example, that 20% of police calls were for nonviolent uh, issues, right? Maybe, uh, you know, somebody was asleep at the wheel, right? They're not driving, they're just parked somewhere uh, asleep in a parking lot. Well, the, the, the owner of the building calls the police because that's who they call, but that's, that's somebody who's asleep you know, they're, they're not bothering anyone. They're like, yeah, but maybe at worst, they're, they're trespassing. But you don't necessarily have to call the police. You can call an outside group that shows up. They're completely, tra they're trained completely differently than the police are. And their number one goal is to resolve the matter through nonviolence, through counseling, through discussion, through whatever means necessary in order to not have, have the kind of scenes that we saw uh, uh, unfortunately, all too recently, right? So you can, you does defund the me police mean, you know, a reallocation of the police, a reallocation to a third party? Does it mean defunding everything? Again, to me, the solution is we bring community leaders into a room with politicians, with police leaders, and we talk through these things because now is the time. If we, if, if we can't do it, after all the things that we've seen and heard and felt, and and you know the, the George Floyd video is, is nothing short of just watching a murder happen, right? Eight minutes and forty six seconds on a man's throat—that's just murder. You know, I can remember 20, 20, I can remember twenty twenty five years ago going through army training, you know, and you, you could you could you know if you knew how to choke somebody properly. I mean, you were causing brain, da brain damage after 10 to 12 seconds, and they were knocked out after just two or three. So to me, eight minutes and 46 seconds on a man's throat, I mean, that's just nothing short of murder. That should never happen, right? How we deal with it says as much about our, our society as, as the event itself. And so we have to bring everyone together, or the leaders for different groups, and we have to do it at the community level because there's not going to be clearly until November, at least there's not going to be any national leadership. Right. But even at a national level, the, you know, the, there's a lot of differences between urban centers, right? So Miami Dade is an urban center. New York city is an urban center, but they're, they've got their own internal differences that you can't even make city to city comparisons. So at a local level, we have to bring community leaders together with leaders of the police, with leaders of, of, uh, of uh, our political spheres and, and, and start talking about real solutions. And I wanna be one of those leaders in Tallahassee that's leading that charge. I fear that too many uh, Republicans right now are, are, simply, are simply abandoning the charge uh, that the people made of them and, and burying their heads in the sand. All right. Uh you mentioned gathering people and within the community for solutions. Um, a few years ago, um, Campaign Zero came out and they have eight reforms. I'm gonna read them out to you and I'm, I wanna get your thoughts. Uh, some of them you mentioned earlier, 
First is end broken window policing. Second is community oversight boards that have teeth to them. Three is limit use of police force, such as chokeholds. Four, independently investigate and prosecute. That means getting a special prosecutor for each and every case of, of police brutality, because sometimes what happens is these prosecutors are buddy-buddy with police and they'll let them off the hook by doing things like overcharging and then those overcharges can't be proved so they're off the hook. And for number four, you just get a special prosecutor. Five, community representation within the police force. Six, body cameras on at all time. Any officer who turns it off, no matter what, gets fired. Seven is training, de-escalation training. Eight is end for profit policing. Nine is media nine is demilitarization and 10 is fair police union contracts. It was actually 10, not eight, my bad. Um, on record, do you support those policies? So I'd have to go into them to, to, really, to really be able to say yes or no, do I support them? Uh, but you know, I would generally say that uh, even without going into the details, I would, I would look favorably on many of those things. Uh, you know, the devil's always in the details. Like the, the, the way I tell people uh, or something I tell people all the time is that, you know, anybody can tell you why they're doing something, right? Because that's what they're passionate about. And anybody can tell you what they're going to do because that's the goal that they're going to. But if you really want to understand, uh, you know, what's driving somebody, ask them how they're going to do it because that's where the details are. That's where the hard choices have to be made. That's where the, 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 the rubber meets the road, if you will. And so, you know, when I, when I look at uh, the titles of, of, those, of those positions, yeah, they sound really good, um, but I really, have to, I really have to go into uh, each one of them individually and, and carve out exactly what they're saying. Maybe, maybe that's a little bit of the lawyer in me because I'm so used to, uh, you know, reading contracts and I like to know exactly what people are agreeing to. Um, but in general, if you take all 10 of those topics and you bring leaders of good faith together uh, to discuss them, I think you come to a better world. And my concern is that right now you're, you're just not, you're not seeing leaders on, uh, of the Republican Party doing that. I think they're just burying their head in the sand and, and, and hiding because they don't want to upset their president. Oh, no, I agree. Um, I agree with what you're saying. You Like, as a politician, especially in your position, you want to, like, look at things more specifically. Um, I like that answer. Uh, now, uh, health care. Um, what's your position on health care reform? So, to me, it's a very interesting debate, uh, more because of my background uh, in, in business administration than from a health care perspective. And the reason I say that is this, um, you know, the, 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 the two main plans that were discussed during the debates um, earlier this year and late last year, the two main plans Democrats were talking about was either Medicare for all or Medicare for all who want it. And, you know, there, there's the, the most interesting thing to me is, uh, the business of it, because once you put the federal government into the mix, right, a, a couple of things are bound to happen. Now, they might not happen right away, but they're going to happen. Uh, 
And what I mean by that is this, if you have, you know, private insurance companies, uh, as big as they are and as much money as they have, having to compete with the federal government, federal government's always going to win. You know, the, 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 the costs to the federal government don't include all of the overhead, the, the marketing costs, the development costs that, that uh, the private businesses have. And so if you say Medicare for all and you're calling it the one payer system, okay, well then the federal government's gonna basically be the, the national health uh, uh, system, the NHS that, uh, that they have in the UK. And man, does, does the UK love the NHS. Um, but you know, that's, that's basically the system that you're advocating for. If you're advocating for uh, Medicare for all who want it, then what you're saying is that private insurance companies have to compete against the federal government. And it might not happen right away, but eventually they're gonna lose that fight because their costs are always gonna be more. And oh, by the way, it's the federal government, money doesn't mean the same thing that it means to, to, to private companies, right? They can make more, uh, private companies can't. So to me, you know, it, it's really a question of, well, do you want, you know, Medicare for all to convert to that? Would, I think even Bernie's plan called for like a, a three to four year uh, sort of transition, right? Well, to me, the difference between the two plans is one has a three to four year transition. The other one probably has an eight to 10 year transition because you've got a few years of private companies uh, competing against the, the federal government first, and then the federal government just sort of becomes the single payer uh, on the basis of competition. So I don't see too much difference in the plans from that perspective. It's the question of time is really the big difference. The one thing that I would say is that, you know, we, we created Obamacare um, as a first step. Like even President Obama uh, didn't didn't believe that the Affordable Care Act was the be all end all. It was always intended to be the first step, and so you know, in my mind, we as Democrats have to have to push that forward. Uh, I always I always tell people, you know, whenever they call us socialists, fight back immediately because we are the party of opportunity, right? That's the word that really that really describes us, right? Republicans have been calling us socialists for a hundred years. It was it was tired, old, and wrong back then, and it's even worse now. But we were that we were the the, the party uh, that uh, that created um, what do you call it uh, Medicare in the first place. We were the party of Social Security. We were the party of the Civil Rights Movement. We've become now the party of 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 uh, healthcare. And so all of that boils down to providing opportunity for different types of Americans. So to me, when, when somebody asks me Medicare for all versus Medicare for all who want it, what I'm really hearing is people are getting opportunity and that's worth fighting for. You know, where we, where we come down eventually, I think is it probably needs a little bit more study, um, but, Ultimately, we as Democrats have to fight for opportunity in every form. 
sometimes fighting for opportunity means fighting for injustice, whether that's injustice in healthcare, whether that's social injustice. And, and to me, I don't, I, don't, I don't really get bogged down in one plan or the other. I take either, to be honest with you, uh, because we're gonna eventually end up in the same place. At least that's what I think. All right, um, now on the issue of uh, marijuana, do you support legalizing it on the federal level or just in Florida, legalizing rec recreational and me medical? Now there, now there's a question I would expect from, from a college student. Um, yeah, you know, here's, he, you know, here's the thing. I, uh, you know, in my, my generation uh, has had a different experience with, with marijuana than than the uh, the generation before, you know, people have asked me if I've ever used, and you know, frankly, the answer is no. When I was when I was a kid, uh, I was very much into sports, and so I was always concerned that anything that I put into my body would would make me a, a worse athlete. You know, it, it didn't matter if it was if it was uh, um, marijuana or or beer or liquor. You know, I just I didn't do any of those things because I was I was motivated by by sports, uh, and then as I got older, I just you know it just wasn't my thing. Um, but having said that, you know all the studies show that that marijuana isn't the gateway drug that it was portrayed to be uh, when I was growing up. Right, the the famous Nancy Reagan "Just Say No" cam campaign, uh, you know, had a had a lot of uh, underlying fundamental principles that were just wrong. So to me, marijuana is, you know, simply something, it's just another good, no different than any other, you know, uh, alcohol or beer or cigarettes. And I'm, you know, what I'm, I'm happy to make it legal and then tax it <laughs> and, and raise revenues that, that, uh, that we can use to, to solve some of our problems. Um, you know, that's, that that's really where I see marijuana. I, I see it as more as a revenue stream for government than I do as a, as an ill for individual. All right. And so one of the one of the one of the policies and one of the endorsements you tout on your on your website is gun sense. Um, you're a gun sense endorsed candidate. Um, uh, do you mind um, explaining? Um, one or two of the main gun reform policies you would advocate for as a state legislator? So yeah, so you're gonna get the bonus package. Let me tell you a little story. Um, so God bless, this is maybe 20, 20 25 years ago. Um, you know, I can remember uh, going, going into uh, a building in, in a base that I was stationed at in Germany. And the building was called the MWR building. And MWR stood for morale, uh, or morale, wellness, and recreation. And essentially this building was like a clubhouse. So the main area was usually a basketball court or a gym, sometimes both. You know, it had a, a game room with, with pool tables and ping pong tables. And it had a bunch of classrooms and the classrooms were for clubs so if you were a soldier you wanted to to meet with you know whatever your club was you would use the mwr building and you could get away from 
you know, the barracks and, and where you spent most of your, your waking hours. And I remember I walked into the MWR building and one of, one of the things you see would be, you know, uh, um, pamphlets or propaganda or all of these things from every club you could imagine from, you know, uh, if you had kids, they had information to get your kids involved in, in local chapter of the Boy Scouts. And then they had, you know, cooking classes, if you were into cooking, all kinds of stuff. Well, the, the NRA had uh, a little pamphlet. And I don't remember all of it, but I remember sort of what it looked like. It looked like almost like a, like a Ten Commandments kind of list. And at the very top, the number one item was, was, was something that I, I thought was remarkable. It said, before you shoot, think about what you will hit if you miss, right? And I thought that that was such good advice that I actually incorporated that into training for my soldiers, right? And now when I think about that phrase, it's usually after some mass shooting. And so the, you know, the example that I give are assault weapons. And so assault weapons, it's not even possible to think about what you will hit if you miss because assault weapons provide you with the ability to fire so many rounds in, in a single second. And so, you know, I am, I am pro assault weapon ban at my core. Uh, now, the devil's in the details. How do you define an assault weapon? You know, I think we need to get people in the room to talk about it. But at the end of the day, weapons of war have no business in, in our society. It's never been the intention uh, to have such weapons uh, at individuals' disposal. So that's one example. Um, you know, I'm also, I also am in favor of closing the gun show loophole. Uh, one way to, to, to one simple, and, and so let me describe it and for those that don't know what I'm talking about. So if you buy a gun at a gun store, there's a waiting period. You can't just walk in and take the gun out and pay, after you pay for it, they have to do the background check. But if you go to, uh, 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 if you buy from a private seller, let's say you go to a friend's house to buy their gun, or if you go to a gun show and you buy it from a seller there, you can just walk, walk out with it. You don't have to, there's no background check, right? And so the, the easy way to close that loophole is that no matter where you buy that gun, so let's say you buy it at your friend's house, or you buy it at, uh, at a, gun, a gun show, you can buy it and pay for it, but you can't take it home with you. You have to provide that seller with the address of your local gun shop. They then send it to your gun shop, and only after the gun, the gun shop uh, owner receives the result of your background check can you now take that gun into your possession. Now, that makes a lot of sense regardless of whether you are Republican or Democrat, right? It's just rational because we don't want, you know, somebody that can't pass a background check is not a person that rational people want buying guns and, and having guns, right? From the business owner's perspective, well, you now, you know, you didn't do anything for that sale. The guy bought the gun from somewhere else, but 
now you've, you've got somebody that just came into your store. He can buy all the ammunition from you he wants. He can look around your store, buy any accessories that he wants. It's a perfect opportunity for you as a business owner to get you know, a, a, a free business because here's this guy coming in to pick up a gun that you, you, know, you had no idea he was, he was buying it other than it just, the gun showed up with the background check. So I'm in favor of that as well. Um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not in favor of having uh, guns in school. Uh, I, and, and that goes back to very, very simple, uh, uh, you know, simple uh, lesson. Uh, way back when I was in the Army, I was an infantry, infantry officer. So um, I was the guy that, you know, we would qualify on all types of weapons from handguns to rifles to machine guns, uh, grenade launchers, grenades, explosives, you know, all the way up to Bradley fighting vehicle, which is like a 25 millimeter cannon and, 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 and optically, optically wired uh, guided missiles. Um, we were constantly qualifying and training. And so because of that, we were prepared to fire these weapons. You know, there's an old adage that people say, that I disagree with immensely. They say, you know, good guy, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And whenever I hear that, the first thing that occurs to me is, well, how well trained is the good guy? Does the good guy have situational awareness? Does the good guy clean his weapon? Does the good guy have communications with those around you? Has the good guy trained in urban environments with multiple uh, uh, friendly, uh, friendly potential targets, right? And because the answer to, to those questions is almost universally no. The only time the answer to, to those questions is universally yes is in the movies, right? But in real life, you're asking somebody that is armed with a weapon that doesn't know what's going on in the environment, that hears an active shooter situation to suddenly react to multiple variables in real time. And as an infantry guy from way back when, I can tell you, it takes a lot of training to be able to do that well, to do that safely. So I am just as scared of the good guy with the gun as I am the bad guy with a gun and malicious intent. So for that reason, you know, the idea of having uh, armed teachers or, or uh, armed individuals armed, untrained individuals uh, at our schools and high schools and colleges, to me, that's a non-starter. That, that's, just, that's just way too far. Wait, so you don't want to arm kindergartners? <laughs> no, not my thing, man. Not my thing. Uh, all right. Uh, on one final note, November 3rd, 2020, something good finally happens. You win your state house race. How are you celebrating? Celebrate what, man? Time to get to work. <laughs> <laughs> I love that answer. I, I actually love that answer. <laughs> well, um, it's yeah, been I, great to have you on. Uh, but as you know, all great things must end. Um, you've been a wonderful guest. You've given long but very, very detailed answers. And that's what I like to see in a politician. Well, future politician, hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully, yeah. Well, thank you very much. It, it was my, my pleasure, you know, 
at the end of the day, these, you know, these are all good, hard questions. Uh, but I would hope that, that any aspiring politician uh, would have some well thought out responses or else, you know, why, why even bother? That's facts. Thank you. Take care, brother. Take care. You too. If you really like this episode, please subscribe or whatever it is you do on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast to add me and make sure that you're available and you can see when future content is uploaded. Thank you. Bye.